Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another exciting episode of That's Truth coming to you from the island of Antigua. I'm Nathan Owens and sitting across the desk from me in the studio of the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who might be listening this evening. We are really honored that you have chosen to join us tonight on the program and let me encourage you to contact your friends or family, uh, maybe a coworker. Just send them a quick message and say, hey, just a reminder, that's Truth is On on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We'll be keeping you company for the next 90 minutes. Now, on the program, we've been, over the last three weeks, this will be our fourth week, we've been discussing the topic of Bible prophecy. But before we get to that question, before we get to that topic again tonight, Pastor, we have a question that has come in from a listener. It reads, Pastor Murphy, L, or God, speaks about his likes and dislikes. Being proud, arrogant, and forward are some of his dislikes. Yet people say they are proud to be this or that. Even the national anthem has this. Can we correct these errors? Well, I think uh, it depends on how you're looking at the word proud and the word pride. Um, sometimes it can be, can be too punctilious, and we can be so detailed and, and make issues of matters that really have not real significance. For example, if you go through the dictionary and you check the definition of pride, uh, you'll see that there are several definitions that are, in my judgment, um, uh, not in any way unscriptural, unbiblical. For example, one definition is a feeling of deep pleasure, or satisfaction derived from one's own achievement or the achievements of those with whom one is closely associated or from qualities or possessions that widely are admired. In a case like that, um, I think to use the word proud or the word pride there, I don't see anything wrong with it. On the other hand, there are other definitions of pride that um, certainly we want to, to use. For example, if we have the idea of pride talking about superiority or a person being self-conceited, uh, or the amount of self-elevation or personal ascendancy or somehow being uh, exclusively unique in that sense, I think that um, maybe the use of the word would be improper. So I think it's, it depends on how you use the word. I think some people make issues of matters that are really not that significant. Uh, Paul talks about this in the book of Timothy, where people get into arguments about words that, that mean nothing. What we got to get concerned about is Christ and his, his purpose and his, his goals and his program. So I don't think we need to, um, you're not going to take the word pride out of a national anthem. How are you going to get that out of the national anthem? So what's the, what's the issue there? 
Uh, Barbados has a, a code of honor called pride and industry as well. Um, if that means that we are superior, if that means that we are uh, elevating ourselves above other uh, nationalities, if that means uh, national ascendancy or exclusive uh, genius that we have as Barbadians, then that would be the misuse of the word pride. But I don't think that's what it means in the context. I think it has to do with the fact that we've made certain achievements and um, we have certain qualities that uh, we as a national country that we find pleasure in and satisfaction in these achievements. And I don't see why that should be an issue. If you have a child <coughs> and your child excels in um, science or excels in mathematics or excels in some athletic program, you ought to derive some kind of pleasure uh, of that because he's your offspring and he makes you feel good about the fact that he is not um, he's not involved in drugs, he's not involved in chasing women, he's not involved in things that are illegal. Uh, he's taken his time and his effort and disciplined himself to achieve um, greatness. So I don't see why it's impossible or why it should be wrong for a parent to de- de- derive some kind of um, deep pleasure and satisfaction from the child's achievement. So in that sense, uh, when a parent says, I'm proud of my son, I don't see why we should make an issue about that at all. So in my mind, that's being uh, too punctilious, and I think that uh, that only engenders strife and, and debate and contention. I think it depends on how the word is used itself. So I don't. I I, I myself, um, um, the word pride uh, as is used. Um, you, you've got to be careful how you use it. But I can interpret how some person used that word uh, to decide whether or not it's used properly or improperly. But just to say that the word itself should be banned. Uh, a lot of words change over meaning over a period of time, and that's what the English language is all about. The meaning changes, and some things that meant. Uh, something that was horrible or something that was unscriptural uh, over time, that, that, that's changed. Um, if I might use another example, there's some people who get all caught up with the idea of Palestine. Uh, you shouldn't call Israel Palestine. I mean, uh, how are you going to change that, basically? We all know that when we refer to Palestine, we refer to Israel. So I, I don't make uh, those things matters to be disputed and debated about because they're not worth debating and fighting over. Um, you're not going to change the public from using those terms. We're not going to change the media from using those terms. But we understand what they mean by Palestine. We understand they're referring to Israel. So I, um, I, I don't think that we need to get into debates over silly words uh, that engender contention. I think we need to focus on real truth and fo- fo- focus on real issues that has to do with the advancement of the kingdom of God and witnessing the people and getting that biblical truth that would enable us to live more godly lives. As you were talking about how the meaning of words change, the word that came to mind is gay. Uh, I mean, you and I, if I see you across the aisle on first choice, I don't say, hey, pastor, are you gay today? That In today's society, that's just not. Yeah, but there will be times when you're writing a, a document and you might you might use the word gay in this proper, proper use. Right. Or you might be uh, doing something and you might use the word in its proper place. But when you're among people, uh, you have to be very watchful. Now, what do we do? Do we never use the word gay in the sense of happy and joy again because the the, the homosexual community has robbed us of a word? Uh, I just think it depends on how we use it, when we use it. But I don't think it's a word that we should just rip out of the scripture and um, the Bible um, or, or out of the, um, the dictionary and just throw away. Yeah. It has to do with how we use it. And I think people, as you as you get older, I, I don't know. 
I've said this several times in my church. I'm not too sure in our church. When I don't know why um, people don't understand this. As you get older, you should mature. And a lot of your rigidity and your pharisaical attitude should change because you begin to see more of your own uh, deficiencies. You begin to see more of your own sinful nature. And if that doesn't make you into a more mellow person because you're not growing and you're not developing, you just don't really know yourself. So I, I think that um, maturity would lead us not to get into contentious debates about words of this nature. I think we need to be beyond that and um, just evaluate how it is used by a person and recognize that um, sometimes it is used in a bad way, sometimes used in a good way. But I don't think this is something we should fight over. I hope that answers your question satisfactorily. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 7.39. The name of the program is That's Truth. It's a live call-in program. And I'll give you the phone number real quick. If you want to be put live on the air, you can call 268 462-7420, or you can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. Bible prophecy has been the topic that we've been discussing over the last few weeks, but if you have a question on another topic, please don't hesitate to contact us. But we're going to pick up where we left off with Bible prophecy. But Pastor, for the individual who is just jumping in now and uh, wasn't able to listen to the three previous weeks. We've been looking at Daniel's prophetic panoramic survey of world history, and can you briefly remind us of what we covered so far in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7? Well, what we were attempting to do um, to help the audience understand that um, history is really pre-written prophecy, that what is taking place um, in this world is not just a random activities behind all the activities whether political or economic there's a sovereign God who has a plan and he's working out that plan and what we have in the book of Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel to Daniel chapter 7 is a panoramic survey of world history from the time of Nebuchadnezzar until the world ends when Jesus Christ comes back and sets up his millennial kingdom in Daniel 2 you have a, a, a dream by Nebuchadnezzar, and he sees this magnificent uh, monolithic image that is made up of, of, of four sections. There's a head of gold, and uh, we are told that that is Nebuchadnezzar, that's the Babylonian kingdom. There is the arm and breast of, of uh, silver. We're told that this is the Medo-Persian kingdom. And then there's the belly and the thighs, which is the brass made up of, uh, which is the Grecian empire. And then we come down to the legs and the feet and the toes, which has to do with the Roman empire. So we are told that from the time of Nebuchadnezzar until Jesus comes back, there will only be four kingdoms. But the amazing thing is that in Daniel chapter 2, we we're hinted that this kingdom will be divided, and in its final stage, it will be developed into ten toes. Now, we're not told what those ten toes are, but it's significant that it's a mixture of iron and a mixture of clay. This has to do with the mixture of democracy, and this has to do with the mixture of military power. Uh, you're going to have that mixture, the strength of um, iron, and you're going to have the weakness of an amalgamation of people who have liberty and freedom. Uh, in Daniel chapter 7, we have another um, vision, but this time it is not Nebuchadnezzar, this is Daniel. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, as a pagan, his perception of the world kingdom was one of glory. 
But when we come now to Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel is given a vision, uh, Daniel now sees these same four uh, empires as ferocious beasts. This is God's view of these kingdoms of, of, of humanity. And again, you've got the, the lion, and uh, it has eagle's wings. That is the Babylonian empire. Anybody that knows anything about Babylon, and if you look at some of the the paintings or the writings or the diagrams or uh, some of the artifacts, you'll see that the lion with the wings is, is common uh, to the, the Babylonian empire. Uh, we're told uh, after that you've got the the bear, which is the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, we're told that it is tilted on one foot, indicating that the uh, the Persians would eventually become the predominant power. Uh, we are told that it has three ribs uh, in its mouth. Those are the three kingdoms that the Medo-Persian, Lydia, um, Babylon, and Egypt. And then we come down to the, the leopard, uh, which has four wings and has four heads. The four wings, of course, speaks of the speed at which Alexander was able to capture the world in just a few uh, a few pe- a brief period of time. And at age 30, he had conquered the world, and then he died soon after that. The speed of the, the, uh, the, um, the Grecian Empire is emphasized. And then it, it's into four heads. That speaks of after Alexander died, it was divided into four kingdoms. Um, and and uh, those four heads represent that. And then we come down to the nondescript beast, which is a composite. Uh, he, Daniel could not give any particular animal uh, in the ki- animal kingdom that could represent it because this this kingdom is made up of iron teeth and it got uh, feet of brass. So clearly, there's the the Roman Empire and there is also the the Grecian Empire. And then when we come to the book of um, Revelations, we will look at some time in Revelations 13, Revelation 17, we're given greater details about this, this animal that's a composite and is made up of uh, um, these four animal figures that I mentioned. But what fascinates Daniel in Daniel chapter 7 is that uh, this fourth inca- uh, empire, this nondescript fourth empire, grows ten horns. And then he discovers that out of these uh, ten horns, uh, one other horn grows up and uproots three. And this horn has eyes and it has a mouth, uh, speaking of its intelligence and speaking of its charisma. And it's, it's a, uh, this horn is a, a leader to come in the future. And he speaks great things against God and blasphemes God. This is the Antichrist. He's coming out of the fourth kingdom. So that means that the Roman Empire, which was the fourth empire, have to be revived. Because there's a, the final phase of the Roman Empire is a ten-nation confederacy. And of that ten-nation confederacy, one of those are going to receive the ascendancy and crush three others so that he becomes the world, the world leader. When we come to Daniel 13 and Daniel, sorry, Revelation 13 Revelation 17, you'll find there's a greater decree about this little horn, which is the Antichrist who is to come. So that's what fascinates Daniel. That uh, So the Lord is, and by the way, it's interesting that when this final phase takes place, it's the stone that crushes this final empire, hits the image on its toes, and destroys everything. So the Messiah is coming back after this final phase of the Roman Empire uh, is put in place. Uh, and that's how you know, by the way, that this one, this little horn that's coming, is not the Roman Catholic Church. We know that because this one has not come on the scene as yet. He's coming when this 10th phase uh, of the Roman Empire is revived, then out of this t- ten, ten uh, kings, the ten uh, kingdoms, 
you'll have this little horn coming up. So we, we expect him to come in the future. What a lot of people believe, most people who believe in Bible prophecy and are premillennials, they believe that the European common market is the beginning of this final phase of the Roman Empire because when the Roman Empire was demi- when he the demise, all the fragments of the Roman Empire are the European powers. And it's believed that the resurgence of what you're seeing there with the European Economic U- uh, Union, that that is the beginning. Now, of course, they've got over 15 nations within the e- e- uh, EU. Uh, you know that Britain is coming out Brexit because of Brexit. Mm-hmm. I suspect as time goes on, you're going to find that others are going to leave as well until the final phase of 10 will be there. And then out of those 10, one will arrive that will become the Antichrist. That's basically what Daniel tells us in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. But the book of Revelation is further elaboration on this and give you far more details on these matters. And when we come to that, you'll see that the details are even more ex- um, more profound. If you want to listen to the last three episodes or any previous episode of That's Truth, you can go to your computer or your phone and Google That's Truth podcast, and it will pop up on multiple different providers, uh, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, uh, iTunes, uh, Anchor, whichever one you want to choose, Spotify, and you can choose the episode that you would desire and the last three have been in detail on these things the pastor was just discussing about bible prophecy now pastor as we move forward into fresh material tonight are there other passages in daniel that specifically talk about future events and bible prophecy there are other passages when you come to chapter uh, 11 and uh, in particular chapter number nine is a, is a very fascinating prophecy there. If you turn there to Daniel chapter 9 and look at verse 24 to 27, if you'd be so kind as to read that, um, you will see that this has to do with a prophecy that relates to Israel. Now Israel is going to play a predominant role in the end times and Israel is a, uh, a major player in God's prophetic program. And here in Daniel chapter 9, if you read verse 24 and following to 27, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision of prophecy and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even its troublous times, even in troublous times, and after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off but not for himself and the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end of it shall be with a flood and unto the end of the war of de- war desolations are determined in verse 27 and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease and for 
the overspread of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. This uh, particular section, Daniel chapter 9 to 24 to 27, is commonly called Daniel's 70th week, 70 weeks, uh, because that's the word that is used there in the King James Version. The problem with that is that there's no word for week in the Jewish language. Actually, the word that is translated there is, is seven. It's the word Shabuah, which means seven. So it's 70 sevens, basically. And uh, Bible prophets, uh, prophecy and those who have studied this, this things uh, in some depth um, believe that this is 70 seven years, another 490 years. I'll tell you why we believe that. First of all, you notice that in the first verse 24, that um, seven things are to be accomplished within this 70 weeks. Uh, First of all, we're told that it relates to Daniel's people, that's the Jews. So this prophecy has to do with the Jews. Uh, Secondly, we're told it relates to the holy city, which is Jerusalem. So whatever this prophecy has to do, has to do with Israel and has to do with Jerusalem. And then we thought it has to uh, complete the transgression and bring sin to an end. So it's a matter of uh, bringing the whole uh, uh, whole um, plan of God for forgiveness of sin and bringing the whole sin issue to an end. And then we're told that it, it also makes reconciliation for iniquity. So it involves, by the time this 70 weeks is over, all of this will be completed. The, the sin problem, uh, reconciliation, and also bringing um, everlasting righteousness. It will bring in everlasting righteousness. And then it will seal up uh, the prophecy. In other words, it brings all prophecy to an end, and it anoints the Holy One, which is the Messiah who is to come. So from within the 70 weeks, He's talking about all of this has to be accomplished. The Messiah has to be anointed. Uh, the righteousness has to be brought in. Iniquity has to be dealt with. Sin has to be dealt with. Um, prophecy is, is is complete. So that's why uh, this is a period of time that has to do... And by, and by the way, notice this 77s relate to Jerusalem and it relates to Israel. Okay, so this is something future. Um we're also given some details that help us to be able to identify why this is, 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 is 77 or 490 uh, years. Um, you notice that there are two, three periods in it. First of all, uh, there is in the verses that, um, if you read verse 25. Verse 25 says, Know therefore... And understand that from the going of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and Okay, just wait a minute there. Uh, Notice that you have the first division, and the first division is what? Seven weeks. Seven weeks, which is seven sevens. It's 49. And it it begins when? When Uh, the command... To rebuild the temple. To rebuild the temple. Um, to rebuild Jerusalem, not rebuild, the temple. Yeah, rebuild Jerusalem. Right. Yeah. Uh, we know that that command was given by King Artaxerxes in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1 to 8. And the date for that is settled by Bible scholars as March 4, 445 BC. It took uh, 49 years to complete the temple, which was done in 396 BC. So that the first seven years was completed from the time. F- 
the command was given to rebuild Jerusalem, and within seven sevens, 49 years, the temple, uh, the, the Jerusalem will be built. That was rebuilt. Okay. But then notice it adds another thing there, the second phase. And three score and two weeks, the street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublous times. Okay. Um, chapter 9, um, verse, um, you're looking at what verse there? 25, the second half of verse 25. Okay. Okay, and then uh, if you look at the other, uh, verse 26. Verse 26, And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself, and the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. Okay, that's the second phase, 62 weeks. So when you add the 49 weeks and 62 weeks, fix it, uh, 62 weeks is 434. When you add 434 and 490 and 49, which is the first seven, uh, you come up with 483. Okay? That's when the Messiah will be cut off from 445 uh, to 483. If you do your calculations, you're oh. going to get 38 years there. But Christ was cut off in what? AD 33. The, the, the reason why this is this way is because if you take the Jewish calendar and you do your calculations, and you, you'll see it comes up to 33 AD, uh, AD, which Christ was died, when Christ died. There's a book that is written by Sir Robert Anderson called The Coming Prince. I would recommend to those who are interested in, in furthering study in this matter, uh, he was the former head of Scotland Yard in England. And he did a thorough investigation of Daniel's prophecy, and he uh, he gives a precise defi- uh, date of when this occurred. The Messiah would be cut off. The Jews would have known that Christ, the Messiah, would have died, the Prince that was to come, in 33 A.D. Uh, and that is why there was so much speculation when our Lord was born about the king of the Jews. You notice that all Jerusalem was troubled because those who knew the prophetic word knew where he would be born. And they also knew that something would take place, according to the prophet Daniel, that he would somehow, well, they didn't believe in his death. But clearly here in Daniel, the Messiah would be cut off after 483 years. And you subtract that from 445, you come to 338 years. But again, you make the adjustment using... 30, 30 days as a uh, the prophetic month of Jewish calendar, you'll see that it comes about about 33 AD. That's when the Messiah died. So the first stage is uh, the first 49 years from 445, the temple will be rebuilt. The, uh, not the temple, the streets of Jerusalem will be built, etc., etc. And then when you add 62 to that, you come to 483. Uh, and then there's something else that's going to take place. Um, if you go to Daniel chapter 9 again, it says in verse 26, And after three score and two weeks shall the Messiah be cut off. That's the death of the Messiah. Uh, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city. Okay. Uh, there's a prince to come. And you'll know who that prince is going to be because his people destroyed the temple. When was the temple destroyed? In 70 AD. Who destroyed the temple? Titus, the Roman emperor, uh, Roman emperor, he destroyed the temple. So a prince is coming who's going to sign a contract with Israel for seven, uh, one week, which is seven years. But we know who he's going to be because he's coming out of the Roman Empire, because it's the Roman Empire that destroyed the temple. See, mm. That's where Daniel is now giving you the, about the future. Messiah is going to be cut off, but there's coming a prince. 
uh, and uh, we will know who he is. He shall come and destroy, and the prince that is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, etc., etc. And we know in 70 AD, that's exactly the prince that was to come to destroy the temple. We know who he is. Titus, in 70 AD, destroyed the Jewish temple. And uh, he said in verse 27, And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. So this coming prince, who is of the people that destroyed the temple, is coming. And he's going to sign a contract with Israel for seven weeks, which is seven what? Seven years. Remember, we talked seven, seven, seven. So one, one, seven. This is a seven-year contract. That's why you always hear that the Messiah, the, 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 the Antichrist, is going to sign a contract with Israel for seven years. And then in the midst of those years, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one, one week, one seven. And in the midst of the seven, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. So the, this false Messiah is going to sign a contract with Israel, uh, offering her peace and security. And, uh, but Israel is going to believe that this is the final Messiah, because what Israel wants above everything else today is what? Peace. Yeah. She's at war. She wants someone who can give her security, absolute security. And this one will come and give that security for seven years, but he's the Antichrist. And Israel will be fooled because the Messiah is coming as a world ruler. That's how they always believed the Messiah was coming. And that's why Christ was a stumbling stone to the Jews. They thought that when he came, he would deliver them from the Roman Empire, set up Israel as the center of the world, and he would rule from Jerusalem, which other prophetic passages make very, very clear that when Christ returns, Jerusalem becomes the center of the world and Christ rules from Jerusalem and all nations will point to Jerusalem. That's the Messiah they're looking for. So this man comes now and offers the peace they're looking for. Sign it and the Jews go with it for seven, uh, for seven, seven years. But in the midst, he breaks the covenant and what he does is what, he, what we'll find later on in the book of Daniel. And history talks about a man called Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, he's a type of the Antichrist. He's also described as a little horn in, in, in Daniel chapter 11. Uh, this, so there's been a little horn before this, which we, we didn't discuss because we didn't want to go into Greek history. But uh, he set up a, a, a pig and sacrificed a pig in the Jewish altar. And that's what called the Maccabean Rebellion. You probably know that in history. Well, this Antichrist that's come is going to do a similar thing. He's going to make the covenant, and then in the midst, he's going to set up his image, which the Bible talks about, um, the image of the beast. That is set up now in the temple. If you read Second Thessalonians chapter 2, it talks about, about that, when he, he claims to be God in the, in the temple of God. So notice in Daniel chapter um, 9, there are 77s, 490 uh, years. Uh, that is divided into three periods. Uh, first of all, you've got a period seven by seven, seven by, which is 49 years, going from 445 B.C. when the command was given to re, uh, rebuild the temple. It took 49 years. And then another 62 years, which is 62 by seven, which is 434. You add 434 to, four, uh, to, four, to 49, and you come to 483, right? When you subtract that from the year, it was done 445, you come to 38. But again, the adjustments need to be made because the Jewish calendar is not like ours. It's, it's, we got 365, it's, it's, 30, it's um, 360. So when the adjustment is made, the Messiah will be cut off in 33 AD. But then the Bible says there's still one more week. So you've got 49 already taken up, but the one more week now is to come in the future. How do we know when that's going to happen? Because when a leader 
comes out of the empire that destroyed the Jewish temple, which was the Roman Empire, Titus 70 AD. That prince is coming out of the people that destroyed, the prince to come is coming out of the people that destroyed the temple. When he comes, he'll sign a contract with Israel for seven years, offer them peace, and in the midst of that uh, uh, seven-year treaty. He breaks the treaty, sets up his image, and that's what the Bible calls the Great Tribulation Period. It's then, then, that the Jews will be, re- begin to realize that this is not the Messiah, and of course, he'll begin to persecute what is called the saints and the people of God. So, Daniel chapter 9 is yet future, and it's explaining to you who the Antichrist is, what he's going to do, and how it relates to the nation of Israel. And you can see why Israel would would believe this one is the coming Messiah, because he offers them a peace pact for seven years. And that's where we are currently waiting. Well, we're not waiting because the church is going to be raptured. But already, uh, we do have some of the major players in Bible prophecy on the world scene. There's the King of the East. There is the alignment that the Bible talks about in Ezekiel chapter 30. 3738, where Russia is going to invade. And by the way, when does Russia and her allies invade? When Israel is at peace. So somewhere along the line, when this peace pact is made, she now feels secure, and that's the time Russia and her allies begin to attack in Ezekiel chapter 37, Ezekiel chapter 38. But um, Israel is a major player when it comes to Bible prophecy. Uh, God has made certain promises to the Jewish people and to Abraham and to the fathers, and God has never broken one promise, and he will not break one promise. Uh, So Israel will play a major role in the future. And we need to look at the European uh, part of the world. We need to look at the Middle Eastern part of the world. We need to look at the Bible and begin to put these things together and see that, uh, as it were, we begin to see an outline of what we can expect in the future. So just to make sure I'm understanding this correctly, those verses we looked at at the end of Daniel chapter 9, they start... Uh, 445. 445 until the time of Christ, uh, death, around 33 AD. Right. And then it jumps to the Antichrist it's a gap. and the tribulation. Yeah, okay. because it's still one, one, more, one more seven that is between Israel. Do you remember this whole 70 weeks about Israel and Jerusalem, my mm-hmm. people? So this is where the seven-year tribulation period is now. This is what Daniel is talking about and that the book of Revelation elaborates on that it is during this period the Antichrist would manifest himself. And that's when you're going to have Daniel, th- Revelations 13 and 17 talk about the beast, the beast out of the sea and the beast out of the land, and the image of the the, uh, the beast, uh, etc. Would this gap be an example of that biblical or that uh, principle you were talking about the first week, how you'll be reading along and there's a gap, and based on the context, you're able to figure out that there's a gap? That's the same idea. Remember in um, in book of uh, Isaiah chapter 11, you've got the first coming and the second coming put in two verses, but you're never told there's going to be a, this massive gap between the two. They, they just seem to run together. And that's why you need to be able in Bible prophecy to understand that there is a, a gap. The church age, for example, is a mystery. This is something that was never revealed to the prophets, that there was something called the church. They only saw Israel, but they never saw the church. And Paul explains this mystery, by the way, in um, Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, this whole mystery of how uh, God was using the Jew, the Jew turned away in unbelief, and then God grafted in the Gentiles into his program. And then Paul makes it very clear that uh, God has not abandoned the Jew uh, God has not forsaken the Jew. God is going to one day regraph Israel into his program. And that's what we're waiting for. When the church is raptured, 
God now puts Israel back in this program. And um, so Israel has a, a real prominent place to play in, pu- in the future. And, and by the way, a lot of churches, especially the Reformed churches, the, uh, the, the Calvinistic group, they don't have a place for Israel in the program. So their eschatology, they believe in what is something called uh, millennialism. They do not believe in premillennial uh, beliefs. And they don't think that Israel, they think that all the promises that were made to Israel are now absorbed. So what has happened, the church has replaced Israel, it's called replacement theology. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Israel is temporarily set aside, the church has been grafted in. But then when, according to God's program, the appropriate times come, the rapture occurs, the church goes, and then God grafts Israel back in this program. That's what Paul talks, talks about in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. I recently heard a pastor referencing the fact that a lot of people who would claim the promises to Israel don't want to claim the judgment uh, <laughs> that is predicted for Israel in the future. Well said. Well said. The time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is seven and a half minutes after 8 p.m. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, and we are glad that you are. We're broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 a.m., 92.3 f.m., and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. And for this program, That's Truth, We are also on Facebook Live. You can go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page and then click on the Facebook Live video feed and you can see what goes on behind the scenes during this program. It is a live interactive program and we look forward to your interaction. Maybe you have a question about what the Bible says on a particular topic. Maybe you have a suggested topic you'd like us to cover. Give us a call. The phone number is 1-268-462-7420. The phone line is available and open. 268-462-7420. If you'd rather not speak live on the air, but you want to send your question via WhatsApp or text message, you can send it to 1-268-782-1454. Let me give that to you one more time. WhatsApp or text 268-782-1454. Let me just take just a moment to say thank you for joining us on the program. We are here not just to talk. We are here for you. We are here to answer your questions. We are here to enlighten you on a biblical worldview of what the Bible says in relation to your questions. And tonight we're talking about Bible prophecy. Pastor? Yeah, I want to say something else about Nathan, uh, because in the same passage, Revelation, uh, sorry, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, he said he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, or for one seven, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. I just want to point out to the, the audience, this is why the Jewish temple is going to be rebuilt. Because uh, <clears throat> the Antichrist, when he comes, he's going to offer Israel peace. He'll be able to get back to the whole religious system. And the sacrifices will be restored. And then in the midst of that, the sacrifices cease. It's interesting, by the way, that right now in, in Israel and Palestine, you've got a group that have already built the utensils for the, the temple. Uh, they've already got uh, a lot of the furniture, a lot of the gongs. They've already selected uh, people who are from Levi and, 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 and Cohen. Cohen is the son of Korah. 
So people who are from that particular tribe, remember the Levites are the only ones that can be priests. People are already being trained from Levi and Kohen descendants because the name tells you that these are Levites. These are, uh, are already being trained in the, um, the, the procedures to be operated in the temple. The, the biggest problem that Israel faced right now is that the Temple Mount, where the Dome of the Rock is, is where the temple is supposed to be. The Does qu- the temple have to be rebuilt in that spot? Do we know? A lot of scholars believe that the Dome of the Rock is not on a precise location, and it could be built side by side. But the problem there is uh, we don't know how that's going to work out. I remember when they were having the Scud missiles coming for, during the, the, uh, the war. I always felt that that was the solution to the problem, that the Arabs are going to shoot at Israel. Like these, mis- these, um, these um, weapons are now being sent into Israel from uh, uh, Gaza. Yeah, I am. I I am not a son of a prophet, but I would not be surprised if one of those veer off the the course intended and actually demolish the the mosque there, and that would then give Israel an opportunity to rebuild the the temple. But whatever happens, we're not sure what's going to happen. We do know this from Bible prophecy that the temple will be built. When you go to Second Thessalonians chapter two, we are told that the Antichrist sits in the temple of God, saying that he's God. So once again, the temple is going to be rebuilt. And the, uh, the one thing that Israel is looking for today is what is called the red heifer. The red heifer, the ashes of the red heifer, is what was sprinkled on the priest to purify the priest to make them, um, make them adequate for service in the temple. And they're trained to different ways to try to get back, get a red heifer. The Jews are very meticulous on this whole matter. And they are trying to breed. And they've got, uh, even in the States, they've got people trying to breed to create a red heifer. That's what's needed. If we only knew what was going on behind the scenes and how close we are to midnight, I think we would wake up. But I think we're living in a world where we are confused by the news around us and the the global situation. But we little understand that God's program is slowly being worked behind the scenes and is coming to fruition. Pastor, we have a caller on the air from Grays Hill, Antigua. Thank you very much for calling. And go ahead with your question, please. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'm very impressed with your your program. Well, not, not, not only your program, but your Sunday evening service on CRL. All I can say is thank you very much. I appreciate yes, it. I yes, appreciate that. You're treating it as it is. I'm telling you, very impressive. Well, I don't try to be impressive, though. I try to preach the Word, and I, if I'm preaching the Word and it's a, uh, being a benefit to you, that has accomplished the purpose for which it was designed, because our purpose is to edify and to inform, and of course, ultimately, to bring people to faith and trust in Christ. So I really appreciate your sentiments. Um, something I want to know, though. Go ahead. The non-believer, non-Christian, uh-huh. when he or she dies, the body goes back to the dust. What happens to the soul? Where, where does it go until Christ comes back? Well, the answer to that is found in Luke chapter 16, uh, where we are told that Lazarus died and he went to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man died and he went to a place called Hades. Now, if you know, uh, if you may not be familiar with uh, Christian theology, but it's the the... Prior to Christ's death on the cross and his ascendancy back to heaven where he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, uh, when a man died, uh, he went to a place called Hades. Hades is the the place of departed death. In Luke chapter 16, you notice that there are two compartments. There's a part where the believer is comforted. There's a part where the unbeliever is tormented in the flame. 
So that unsaved person today, when a believer dies today, he no longer goes to Hades. The Bible says, absent from the body, present with the Lord, because Christ's resurrection, his ascension, is now he's led captivity captive. He took all those who were uh, de- died in, in, in faith prior to his resurrection. When he was resurrected, reading uh, the book of Ephesians, he took all of those with him. So the believer's spirit is now with him in heaven. It's no longer in Hades, but the unsaved person. That's where he continues to go, uh, where the Bible says, uh, I'm tormented in this flame. So the unsaved person who is not a believer, who dies outside of Christ, he continues to remain in Hades, uh, the place of torment, but the believer... Is been t- now absent from the body taken to the Lord. You remember when uh, Christ was resurrected, Mary tried to get hold of him and he said, don't touch me because I'm not resurrected. The yeah. resurrection had to take place so that having covered and died for man's sin and dealt with the sin problem, that now enables God to take the believer's spirit into his presence. So when I die or you die today, we're not longer going to Hades, we're going directly to the Lord, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And Paul expressed that saying he had a desire to be uh, to leave and to be the word there is to uh, set sail as it were uh, that was Paul's optimism because now that Christ has died and sin problem is dealt with uh, we are no longer be confined to this dark realm of Hades we are uh, absent from the body present with the Lord but the unsaved person because he doesn't know Christ as Savior and his sins have not been forgiven he continues to be in that place where our Lord warns now I know people say it's a parable but a parable teaches something it teaches truth that when people die, they go one or two places. That's the essence of that parable. The believer is comforted. The unbeliever is tormented. That doesn't change the fact, whether you call it a parable or not. The teaching is there, and uh, that's what still happens to the unsaved person. Uh, so is that torment the real hell's torment? Well, let me ask you a question. Uh, did he say it was real? Uh, the Bible teaches that. No, did Christ try to change that? And 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 uh, you know there was no issues. The Bible is so clear on this matter. We got to understand we're dealing with the Holy God, and we can't sin with impunity, and there are no consequences. He has warned us that He, in His holiness, will judge sin, and He's told us exactly what will happen to us if we do not put our faith and trust in Christ. So when we make a choice to reject Him. We have chosen the alternative. Rather than choose heaven, we've chosen damnation. But he has not anywhere in his word left us without a witness. He's warned us again and again and again. There's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. When people choose hell, uh, they've made their choice. And that's what the Bible teaches. Okay, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, You're welcome, sir. You're very much welcome. And thank you very much as well. God bless you. Thank you for listening. Keep encouraging others to listen also. And God bless you. Have a good night as you serve him. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 817. The phone line is available again. So if you'd like to call with a question, please don't hesitate. Please do. The phone number is 268 462 7420, or if you'd rather WhatsApp or text, you can send your question to 268-782-1454. We're talking about Bible prophecy tonight, and Pastor, you've mentioned multiple times tonight that Israel is still has a purpose in God's plan, and 
we're talking, I know there's a lot of confusion right now in the Middle East, and you hear about it almost every day on BBC News uh, between Israel and the Palestinians and uh, the Gaza Strip and the missiles being launched in that you referenced earlier. What is the basis of this conflict? Why do both of them lay claim? And what's the right perspective? Who really has a right to Palestine? Well, let me just mention, you know, we just saw there in uh, Daniel chapter 9 that it relates to Daniel's people, the Jews, and it relates to what? Jerusalem. So Israel and Palestine is going to play a vital role as far as the end time is concerned. Uh, Arguably the most explosive question uh, today has to do with the whole question of why they're having this this terrible fight between Israel and Palestine and the ultimate question of course is who really owns Palestine who has a right to Palestine Uh, both the Arabs and the Jews uh, make forceful claims and they claim both of them claim that they have historical and religious reasons for uh, ownership of Palestine let me let me give you uh, the ones that the the Arabs claim the Palestinians this is this is their argument uh, there are actually five um, arguments that they use, basic arguments. One has to do with the long residency in the land. Uh, Palestine was conquered by the Muslim uh, Caliph Omar in 638. And the Arabs as a group have lived in Palestine since 638 AD. There's no dispute about that. Uh, when the British... Um, conquered the land um, at the time in 1917 during the second, the First World War. They took over the land from the Turks. The Turks were the dominant force there and the Arabs, when the British did this, the overwhelming population was the Arab people that were there. So they claimed that their long residency there since 1638 and under the rule of the Turks until 1917 they claim that that gives them a right because they've been living there for centuries. Um, the other argument that they use is that the British um, leader, uh, MacMahon, uh, had an agreement with uh, Hussein, in an agreement, and during the First World War, uh, they had promised the Arab leaders that the entire Levant, which is the area from the, the Mediterranean, east of the Mediterranean, all of that, uh, would become a pan-Arabic uh, state. That was a promise made by the British government. Um, th- that's what they, they think that, that that promise made in the, as a result of the First World War, the, that they should be given that territory from the Mediterranean right across uh, should belong to them. That's the second argument that is a British promise. The third argument is that they are suffering from what they may call a mini-Holocaust. And what we mean by that is that uh, they have been so mistreated under the the um, the Israeli since the Israeli came back in 1948, uh, was founded there. The new the Palestine was became Israel in 1948. Uh, they said that we were put out of our homes. We were put into camps in um, in Jordan, in Syria, in um, in um, the Gaza, and uh, we left our home so we should get some kind of reparations 
and we should be able to able to, to re- return back. So that's another thing that they, while the Jews talk about their Holocaust, they see their, their Holocaust with the fact that after 1948, when the Jews were given back Palestine, that they left and they lost their property, et cetera, et cetera, and now they're living in camps in different parts of the Arab world. So they say that, you know, it's true that we weren't slaughtered like Hitler slaughtered the Jews, but in a real sense, we're suffering a mini Holocaust the way we've been treated. And then the, the fourth reason that they give is that they appeal to Abraham's ancestry. They claim that the fact that they are out of Abraham, and nobody disputes that, through Ishmael, who was Abraham's first son, they claim that the promise was not made to Isaac. The promise was made to Ishmael and Abraham. And and so, and by the way, all of this is based on the Quran. The Quran, there's no doubt uh, in my mind that the Quran, Quran is a rewrite of the Bible, yeah. the Old Testament, but it is re- a rewritten form of the Old Testament with um, Arabic overtones. So they have twisted the history. And where the Bible said the promise was given to Abraham and to Isaac, they said no, it was given to Abraham and Ishmael. So they're claiming that that's the religious basics uh, for it. And then the other thing is that they claim is that the Arabs uh, believe that Jerusalem is the third holiest city to them. It is Mecca first, Medina, and then Jerusalem. And of course, you got the the, the mosque there, uh, the Dome of the Rock, and you and uh, so they believe that these are the five reasons why they have should have access to Palestine. Now, when it comes to the Jews, the Jews also have uh, five claims that they make in respect to why Palestine should belong to them. Uh, they claim that first of all, they're ancient and they've had continuous residency in Palestine even though they were put out of the land. In other words, all the Jews were never put out of Palestine. There was always a remnant that was remained there. And they've said that from the time of Nebuchadnezzar right through history, they've always had a Jewish remnant in that land. So even though the Jews returned to Palestine in 1948 when the UN recognized Israel as a state, uh, we've always had a remnant there in, in Palestine all this time. So even though we were put out of the land by leader after leader, we still had representatives there continuously. Uh, Remember that Joshua conquered Canaan in in 1405, and for 2,000 years uh, the Jews remained there, even though they were put out by Nebuchadnezzar and put out by the Assyrian king. Uh, their argument is that happened, yes, we argue, but we always had a remnant there, so the land really belongs to us. So our continuity in the land and our residence in land throughout all these years uh, is one of the claims. The second thing is the Balfour Declaration. This was part of the Versailles uh, Peace Treaty, where it guaranteed Israel a national home in Palestine, and the League of Nations, uh, under the British mandate, was supposed to establish um, Israel, a place for Israel to live. And this was part of a, uh, uh, a result of a British, I mean, a, a Jewish guy during the First World War who was a chemist who was able to help uh, with the ammunition. And as a result of his skill, they felt that to honor him, they should create a national state. And then uh, the other thing is that they needed a haven from the Holocaust. The whole world became sympathetic towards the Jews when Hitler slaughtered six million Jews and almost completely uh, obliterated the Jewish nation and Jewish people. 
All that did uh, is to turn the world in favor that these people need a homeland. And the world became sympathetic that the Jew ought to have a homeland for themselves. So while Hitler was trying to destroy the Jew, he turned the world in favor of the Jew, and that's where the UN uh, made a declaration in 1948, uh, and so that the Israel was recognized as a country. The fourth argument, uh, which is the most solid, is that there are the descendants of the Abraham and all the covenants that God has made uh, throughout the Bible. And those covenants were passed on. Uh, the Abrahamic covenant was passed on to Isaac. And from Isaac was passed on to Jacob. And then it was passed on uh, to David. And so they have a very strong argument about the, the land belonging to them as a result of all these covenant agreements that God has made with them. And then the last thing that the Jews uh, claim is that their religious attachment to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a non-negotiable with the Jewish people. Uh, so you've got three great religions that honor Jerusalem. You've got Judaism, you've got Islam, and you, you've got uh, Christianity. And the Jewish people believe that they have a right because that's the city of David. So again, they've got these um, five reasons, just like the, the, the Arabs have got five reasons. But isn't it really, doesn't a lot of it come down to whether you follow the Quran or the Bible? Why are you, I know it's easy for you to say this because you're a Christian, you gotta, you use the Bible as your basis of truth, but a, a Muslim would say the exact same thing. They'd say, no, the Bible's been corrupted. The Koran is the basis of truth. So how can you really have a discussion when the two of you will never agree? Well, I wouldn't say we'd never agree. You know, I hear this stupid argument that people make sometimes. Even the, uh, I must say, there's a, uh, the Rastafarian movement that the Bible is corrupt. I've heard that a thousand times. The white man and the European corrupted the Bible. My argument with those people is that they don't have a clue they have no scholars that have ever examined the Greek language. Anybody with any common sense can go back into the, the Greek, the original, the, the Greek that you can even get it online, and you can compare and get a, a, a what they call an inter, interlinear. And you can compare what is there uh, hundreds of years before the Europeans came into power, like 400 uh, B.C., uh, AD. You can compare that with what the, the Bible is and see if there's any corruption. And there's no corruption whatsoever. So the Greek language that is there, that the, the, all the manuscripts, you compare it with the modern translation, there's no corruption. So there's no argument for it at all. It makes absolutely no sense. If there were scholars and they knew Greek language or knew the Hebrew language, they would understand there's no corruption because the claim is that the Europeans corrupted it. But well, let's take the Greek language then. Let's take the Greek language, take the Hebrew language, and let's compare what those manuscripts say what you have today. And there's no corruption. So I don't think it's an argument that is valid. I just think it's out of ignorance, and I think people have already made up their minds in respect to certain matters. And people are not concerned about truth, by the way. It's all about emotion. Mm. Uh, it's all about uh, sometimes ethnicity. It's about, it's about race. It's about, it's about culture. It's not about truth any longer. But I think that people who really want to find out the truth and they would really do the studying, they don't want to do the hard work of studying either. They want simplistic answers, and I think that this is part of the problem that we face with. But the, don't forget that the, the Muslim religion came 600 years after Christianity. Don't forget that. It's, in, it's 600 that you got uh, uh, the Muslim faith started. So 600 years after Christianity. And that's why I said the Muslim faith is borrowed from Christianity. It's borrowed from the Jewish faith. It is a rewrite of the Jewish Old Testament with, a, with uh, Arabic overtones. 
so, but this argument will continue. What ultimately is the proof of the pudding is the transformation of life when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's the only argument that settles the whole question. But this dispute is not something that I can solve or you can solve or anybody can solve. The only Lord will solve this problem when the Prince of Peace comes back. But this clash will continue. But again, people need to really do more investigation on this matter rather than coming to simplistic answers. You mentioned that the Quran is a rewrite of the Bible. I know a few years back I was reading a book and doing some study along those lines. And especially when you come to the end times prophecy, it is really eerie how much the Bible says this in the Quran. They twist the players to be the exact opposite. Yeah. And Well, look, let me just use an example. For example, uh, the Quran recognizes Christ as a prophet. But the Quran teaches that Jesus Christ was never crucified for sin, that there was no resurrection. So while they're acknowledging a part of his life, uh, they're not prepared to go, which is the ultimate for the Christian, because the whole question, the whole thing about Christ is that he he solved the whole sin problem. Iran, the sin problem is solved by your submission to Allah. There's no need for sacrifice for sin, because you're not born in sin, you're born neutral. That doctrine is contrary to the doctrine of depravity, the the, the the doctrine of original sin. So there's a clash between the two, and the two are like light and darkness. One settles the whole sin problem by saying that we could not pay for the sins of ourselves. We need forgiveness and pardon, and that God sent His only beloved Son to die for us so that the sins that we committed, we can be forgiven and we can be pardoned. And what we need is repentance. Uh, what the, the Muslims believe is that they're good works, is what gets them to heaven. So when they get to heaven, you're going to put a, a, a you know a pan and one good works and bad works. Which one and where the other you get to heaven? It's a salvation of works. Every religion outside of Jesus Christ is a religion of works. So what is true salvation? True salvation is very simple. True salvation is that man is away from God. Man is elated, elated, alienated from God. Man is a sinner. Man needs forgiveness. Man needs pardon. Man is a rebel. And that man could not pay for sin because God is absolutely holy and God requires absolute holiness. But God in his grace and his mercy and his love provided a way where we can have that holiness and that righteousness that man needs. And that has come through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that when we, he died for our sins, uh, so that our sins may be forgiven, but he did more for us. He made the righteousness we need available. So the Bible says when we put our faith and trust in Christ, we're not only forgiven, but the righteousness of Christ is imputed to the believer so that we are now in Christ and God can deal with us from the perspective that we are just as righteous as his son. Paul deals with this in Romans chapter 3 to 5. Salvation is very, very simple. It's God making available to you pardon and forgiveness and you put your faith and trust in what Christ did on the cross. It has nothing to do with the church. The church is only a vehicle of conveying that message. But you joining the church will not save you. The only thing that will save you is when you put your faith and trust in Christ, you repent of your sins, and you put your whole trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross. That, in the essence, is what the gospel is about. Can you explain a little bit about what the role of works is in salvation? Well, works follows salvation. Um, when a person is saved, they will do good works, because Romans tells us that God has already prepared good work for the believer. Uh, and uh, you cannot read the, 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 the epistles without the emphasis that the believer is to practice good works. James says, faith without works is dead. Any believer that claims to be genuine and authentic and put their faith and trust in Christ, and there's not in their life evidence of a change and a transformation, and that they're seeking to pursue that which is right and good, 
that person's profession is suspect. Because once the new nature into the man is transformed, he wants to pursue righteousness. It's part of his nature now. And that's where the distinction is made between a believer and a non-believer. The Bible says in Peter that a non-believer, a professed believer who is not saved, is like the dog going back to his vomit. His nature hasn't changed, right? But the believer's nature has been changed, and he's in pursuit of holiness and righteousness, but if you have no desire for holiness and righteousness and for doing that which is good, I want to say to you, you ought to be very suspicious about your profession. It may very well prove to be fake and bogus and pseudo. You need something real and authentic. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, broadcasting from the island of Antigua, 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening, and in our studios of the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse is 8.35. We have just over 20 minutes left in the program tonight. Pastor, what is the biblical basis for Israel's claim to Palestine? Well, I believe that if you search the scriptures, you'll find that the real biblical uh, claim of Israel for Palestine is based on the covenants that God made with Israel that were handed down and which are very, very explicit in, 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 in the scriptures that these covenants that God made and the promises God made were eternal. They were not something temporary. For example, uh, if we could just look at um, Genesis chapter 12, when we look at the Abrahamic covenant that God made um, with the Jew, when uh, Abraham is the beginning of the Jewish nation, and God made uh, a promise to him, and God made a covenant with him, um, could you read um, Genesis chapter 12, verse 7? Yes. Genesis 12, verse 7 says, And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. Okay, look at verse, uh, um, also look at Genesis 13, verse 14 and 15. All right. 13, verses 14 and 15 says, And the Lord said unto Abram, After that Lot was separated from him, lift up thine eyes, and look from the place where thou art northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. Now notice that word forever. This is not... Uh, by the way, who owns all the real estate in the world? God, God owns it. He, he has a right to decide what land is given to whom. And here he has made a covenant with Abraham, which is an eternal covenant, because he promises this to Israel forever. He doesn't change that. If you look at chapter 17, uh, Nathan, read verse 7 and 8, yep. Genesis. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee, to thy seed after thee, the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So notice that's the Abrahamic covenant, and it's an eternal covenant made between Abraham and respect to the land that will be given to seed forever. Now this covenant was reconfirmed in, in uh, chapter 26, verse 2 and 3, to Isaac, which is um, Abraham's son of promise. 
And the Lord appeared unto him and said, Go not down into Egypt, dwell in the land which I shall tell thee of, sojourn in this land, and I will be with thee, and will bless thee. For unto thee and unto thy seed I will give all these countries, and I will perform the oath which I swear unto Abraham thy father. Again, notice that Isaac is now given the, the same covenant. It's now passed on to Isaac. Same covenant. And then if you look at uh, chapter 28, verse 13, it's passed on to Jacob. 20, chapter 28, verse 13. 28, verse 13 says, And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham thy father and the God of Isaac, the land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it and to thy seed. Again, notice that it went to Abraham, an eternal covenant, belonged to Israel forever. It goes to Isaac, and now it goes to Jacob. So it's handed down from one to the other. So that's the Abrahamic covenant. And then there's what you call the Palestinian covenant. If you look at um, Leviticus, I'm not too sure if we can go to all of all of um, Leviticus, but if you look in um, uh, Leviticus 25 and 26, I'll just suggest and look at Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 30. Let's look at that. Deuteronomy chapter 30, 28, verse 30. All right. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 30. 28 and verse 30 says, Thou shalt betroth a wife, and another man shall lie with her. Thou shalt build an house, and thou shalt not dwell therein. Thou shalt plant a vineyard, and thou shalt not gather grapes thereof. Okay, continue reading. Uh, 31. Thine ox shall be slain. Oh, okay. Um, did I read the wrong one? Yeah, you read it. I gave you the wrong, the wrong passage there. Um, what I wanted to show you that um, in Leviticus chapter twenty-five and twenty-six, uh, there's so many references I, I want to um, um, uh, about the land. Look at twenty-six. Let's look at verse three, verse six, and verse fourteen to fifteen. Uh, Leviticus 26, 26, verse 3, yeah. Verse 3, If ye if walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, then I will give you rain in due season, and the land shall yield her increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Uh, that was verse 4. And then let read verse, um, um, I mentioned verse 3, verse 6. Verse 6 says, And I will give peace in the land, and ye shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will rid evil beasts out of the land, neither shall the sword go through your land. And read verse 14 and 15. But if ye will not hearken unto me, and will not do all these commandments, and if ye will despise my statutes, or if your soul abhor my judgments, so that ye will not do all my commandments... But that ye break my covenant, I also will do this unto you. I will even appoint you over you terror and consumption and burning ague that shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart and shall sow your seed even in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. So just hold it there. Notice the Palestinian covenant. God is, is, is promising blessing, but if they don't do certain things, they're going to be chastisement. If you look at uh, 26, verse 34, 33 and 34. 
And I will scatter you among the heathen, and will draw out a sword after you, and your land shall be desolate, and your cities waste. Then shall the land enjoy her Sabbath as long as it lieth desolate, and ye be in your enemy's land. Even then shall the land rest and enjoy her Sabbath. Okay, so notice that first of all, you're going to bless them in the land, but if they're not obedient to him, you're going to scatter them. That, that's what's been happening to the Jew, because God said there's going to be a penalty, there's going to be a consequence. But then I want to look at uh, chapter 30, verse 1 to 5. Um, Leviticus 30? No, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. Chapter 30, verse 1 to 5. And it shall come to pass, when all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations, whither the Lord thy God hath driven thee, and shalt return unto the Lord thy God, and shalt obey his voice, According to all that I commanded thee this day, thou and thy children, with all thine heart and with all thy soul. Through what verse do you want? Yeah. The point I'm making there that he's going to restore them. Uh, you, you went through to verse number five? No, no. No, go to the verse number five. Uh, verse 3 says, that Then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee and will return and gather thee from all the nations, whither the Lord thy God has scattered thee. If any of thine be, it be driven out to the uttermost parts of heaven, from thence will the Lord thy God gather thee, and from thence will he fetch thee. In verse 5, And the Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed. And thou shalt possess it, and he will do good, do thee good, and multiply thee above thy fathers. Now here's my point. Under the Abrahamic covenant, it's an eternal covenant made by the Jew. The land is given to the Jew forever. Under the Palestinian covenant, God uh, says to the Jews, look, if you in the land and you obey me, I'm going to bring blessing. If you disobey me and you apostatize, I am going to scatter you among the nations. I'm going to destroy you. But then he gives them the assurance that he will always bring them back. And so his covenant with Israel, uh, with, Israel uh, with Abraham is an eternal covenant. And that's why even though the Jew has been driven out of this country again and again, God has pledged to bring him back. And that's what he did in 1948 when he brought all the Jews back to Palestine. And a nation that was not a nation for two years, in one day, became a nation uh, in 1948. Uh, so God has been bringing them back. Now, we talk about that a little bit more in Bible prophecy, but God brings them back in unbelief. Uh, and then he's going to chasten them during the tribulation period to purify them uh, and bring them to the point where they acknowledge the Messiah. So there's the Abrahamic covenant and there is the Palestinian covenant that no matter what happens to the Jews, if God drives them out, he's still going to bring them back to the land because the land is given to them forever. Uh, look at Second um, Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 to 16. You have the Davidic covenant where God made a, a promise to David. Second Samuel chapter, chapter 7, 7, verse 12 to 16. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish thy throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, and with the stripes of the children of men. 
but my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. There it is that God made a pledge to David that his kingdom would never ever cease to be an eternal kingdom. That is what is fulfilled when the Messiah comes back. Interesting, if you look at uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 32 to 33, you see that this promise that is made to David is going to be fulfilled in the Messiah. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 32 to 33. He shall be great, and he shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. Okay, you read 33 as well. Uh, 33 says, And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there shall be no end. The eternal kingdom that, that, that was promised to David is going to be fulfilled when the Messiah comes back. So, And, and by the way, it's the throne of David, which is the, the Jewish earthly throne. That's why the millennial kingdom is necessary. It's not, it's not an option. It is God fulfilling the promises that he made uh, to David, and that will be fulfilled in the future. He, he said that one would sit on David's throne who will reign forever, and that's the Messiah. There's only one person who can reign forever. That's the Messiah. He's coming back. And Luke chapter 1 makes it clear that the one who will fulfill the promise of David is the Messiah. But of course, we know the Messiah was crucified because he comes first of all to die. He comes secondly to reign. He's the lamb when he comes first. He's the lamb when he returns. So he's coming back to take up the throne of David. So what I'm saying to you that the promises that God made to Abraham was repeated in, in, in Palestine and then it was given further to David that this is going to be an eternal, eternal throne. And then there's one other covenant that God made with them and that is found in um, I, look, Jeremiah, um, it's called the New Covenant. I, uh, let's look at um, Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 40. All right, Jeremiah 32, verse 40 says, And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from them, to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts, that they shall not depart from me. This is what is called the New Covenant. And by the way, if you look at, um, also look at Jeremiah 55, 50 verse 5. All right. They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces thitherward, saying, Come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten. This is going to be the new covenant that God is going to make with Israel. And uh, this is also promised in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 5, Isaiah chapter 61, verse 8. And the book of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20 refers to it. It's a, a perpetual eternal covenant called the new covenant when you can give them a new spirit and nobody will have to teach them. Uh, the law It's going to be written in their hearts. That's yet to be fulfilled. That's called the new covenant. When you look at the Abrahamic covenant, the Palestinian covenant, and you look at the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant, all of these are eternal covenants that God made with Israel. And I believe that the biblical basis for Israel's claim to the land of Palestine rests on these uh, four uh, eternal covenants that God made with Israel. And God cannot break his promise. God cannot break his covenant. These covenants will be fulfilled, and that's why Israel is going to play such a predominant role when it comes to the end time after the church is raptured. Anybody that has no place for Israel in the prophetic program will always have a skewed understanding of Bible prophecy, because uh, this is the role that God has assigned to Israel as part of his plan for them. 
Pastor, you keep mentioning that God is not finished with Israel, that he has a future for them. For those who say that God has replaced Israel with the church and are asking, Pastor, how do you back this up with the Bible? How would you respond? Well, I think it's very, very simple. Um, in the book of Romans, uh, verse chapter 9 to 10, uh, God sets forth very clearly what his program is for Israel. Uh, in chapter 9, he talks about Israel's past. And uh, he talks about the benefits that accrue to Israel. If you look at uh, Romans chapter 9, um, with me for just a moment, look at verse number 1 to 3. Okay. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also beareth, bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I wish, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So who is Paul's kinsmen according to the flesh? The Jews. It's the Jews. Now, from chapter 9 to chapter 11, Paul is going to explain where Israel fits into God's program. Uh, first thing he does here, he expresses his, his burden. And, and by the way, it's fascinating that Paul said, I wish I could be damned if my people be saved. Now, you think about that for just a statement. moment. That's a powerful statement. That talks to a person with passion mm-hmm. and deep uh, concern for his people. And then in verses 4 to 12, Paul talks about the benefits uh, that God endowed Israel with. And you'll find there that uh, he lists 10 of those benefits. He talks about the adoption. Could you read for just a minute? Yeah. Starting in verse 4. Who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of law, and the service of God, and the promises? Okay, and you notice that in verse 4, uh, he talks about six benefits that they had, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the law, the service of God, the promises. In verse number 5, he, he mentions two other benefits, that they had the fathers, that's the patriarchs. And then in verse number 8, he talks about Christ. And then in verse number 9, he points out that they're the chosen seed, and they're the elect for the service of God. So when you look at that, Israel had 10 uh, spiritual benefits that Paul outlined. So not only is he burdened, but he gives you there the Israel benefits. And then he talks about, in verse uh, chapter 9 he, uh, to chapter 10, verse 21, he talks about Israel's blunder. Uh, and um, read f- uh, verse number 31 for just a moment. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Right. And then if you continue reading for just a moment, verses... um, Verse 32 says, Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. So here's here's what Paul points out. They had all these blessings, and uh, now they've made a blunder. What's the blunder? They sought to achieve righteousness through the works of the law. And not only that, in verse 32, they stumble over the stumbling stone, which is Christ. They stumble mm-hmm. over Christ the Messiah. And then in, if you look at verses um, chapter 10 now, verses 1 to 4. All right. Brethren, my heart desire and pray to God is for, for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For, their being, for they, being ignorant of God's righteousness 
and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. So having all of these benefits, you would have thought that they would understand that when the Messiah comes, that God had a way of providing a righteousness. But again, the law has always the impediment in the Jewish way. They always gave too much weight to the law and felt that the law was a means of achieving righteousness called works righteousness. But he points out that they tried to achieve their own righteousness with works of law. As a result of that, when the Messiah came, they stumbled over the Messiah because the way of faith was putting your trust in Christ, not by the works of the law. And then he said they attempted to establish their own righteousness. And the reason why they're ignorant of the righteousness of the Lord, which comes through Jesus Christ, because Christ is the end of the law to righteousness. In other words, God has a way of people putting, having that is true faith in Jesus Christ. But the Jews missed the whole thing. They got so absorbed with the law that they missed the Messiah when he came. So now what has happened now? Look at Israel's blindness in chapter 11. Read chapter number 1, verse number 1 of chapter 11. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, so he's going to explain now. Israel made a tremendous blunder, but the problem of Israel, he's going to point out in, in chapter 11, that Israel is now in a state of blindness. Now, does that mean that God has cast away his people, Israel, and he's not have a plan for them again? And this is what the, uh, the um, replacement the- theologians believe that God is finished with Israel and God has abandoned Israel and God has cast away Israel because of Israel's ability. But Paul asked the question, has God cast away his people irrevocably? And then um, and then uh, Paul goes on to point out, it can't be because I'm a Jew. Yeah. And then he goes on in verse 2 and 4, he talks about 7,000 being preserved in the day of Elijah when Elijah thought he was been his own. So God not only got me as a Jew, but God has always preserved a remnant And then in verse number 5, read that for just a moment. Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. So God could not have abandoned his people in totality. Paul is pointing out here that in the time of of, uh, Elijah, he had a remnant. He now has a present remnant that's being saved. There are Jews that are being saved. But what has happened in verse number 7 to 10, just read that for just a moment, that God has judicially blinded Israel because they stumbled over the Messiah. Notice what it says in verse 7 to 10. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Verse 8, according as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. And David saith, Let their table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense unto them. In verse 10, Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back away. See what happens because of their holding to the law and looking to the law for righteousness when the Messiah came to stumble over the Messiah. And what Paul explains now is that God has judicially blinded the Jews so that he doesn't even Uh, He can't even see the truth. And he quotes Isaiah, uh, showing that this is an act of God to judicially blind the Jew. And he quotes David as evidence. But then notice that this current state of blindness is not final. Read verse 11 and 12. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? 
God forbid, but rather through their fall salvation is come unto Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. Now, verse 12, Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentile, how much more their fullness? Okay. Uh, so what is saying here that the current state of Israel blindness uh, has allowed an opportunity for God to provide salvation for the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are now looking to faith in Jesus Christ as the means of this righteousness that the, the Jews have uh, abandoned. And the reason that uh, the God has grafted the Gentiles is to provoke the Jews to turn back to God. It's like, it's like you, you have forgotten who your daddy is, and your daddy is now paying attention to other people to create your jealousy to reconnect with God. So Paul is saying in the plan of God, this falling away of Israel was designed to provoke Israel to want to return back to God. But meanwhile, he's grafted in the Gentiles. Uh, read verse 13 and following. Verse 13 says, For I speak to you, the Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. We'll have to pick this up next time, but my point is that the, the Jews have not been abandoned. They're always part of God's program, but uh, they've gone through their unbelief because they rejected the Messiah. But God is going to graft them back into his plan. I'll show you that in chapter 11 to show that God will bring Israel back into his plan during the end times. So, Pastor, you are confident that God has a plan from the beginning of time to the end of time, and we are just in that plan? Uh, clearly. Look at um, Daniel 2, Daniel 7. That's God's overall panoramic, uh, panoramic survey of the world history. He knows exactly what's going to take place. And we are living in a time where this moment uh, is one of great opportunity. We need to seize that time. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.